Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good morning. Hi, Luther. How are you all? You didn't know you were coming into a room that looked totally different. I apologize. I didn't. I usually have it set up classroom style. And there are still places at the table if anybody wants to grab a seat at the table. But usually it's set up classroom style. And this was, this was from Sunday night small group. And then they used it last night with small group. And I just forgot to reset it for classroom style. But. So, a little change of pace. There's coffee and some... A uh, little change of pace. There's some uh, little... Loaf breads for dessert back there. Feel free to help yourself. We are going to continue discussion this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. So open your Bibles to chapter 10. We're not, uh, we're, this is part four. We're not through with John, chapter 10 yet, and I don't know that we'll finish it today either. But uh, we probably will finish it by next week. We're, we're in verse 22 is what we're ready for. Let me just briefly review for you. Um, the idea that we left off with last week. And that was that there was some division amongst the people. Jesus has been talking about this, this allegory of the good shepherd and how he is a good shepherd. And that's a comparison with shepherds that have led Israel who were not good. And we talked a lot about that last week, about the fact that there can be bad shepherds, unfortunately, in the church of God. But at the same time, as Jesus began to share with them and claim being the good shepherd, it was clear that he was claiming, uh, and we're going to see it even more today, that he's claiming to be God. And they are really struggling with that. They're struggling with him. And it said at the end there, there was a division among the people. Some of them just thought he was a lunatic or a madman. This guy's crazy because he thinks he's God. And then the others said, but wait a minute. A lunatic or a madman couldn't open the eyes of a man born blind. The works of Jesus are so powerful that people are, it's kind of like the, you know, the gospel is called in the book of Hebrews a two-edged sword. The gospel is a sharp two-edged sword. The gospel is the life of Jesus Christ. Okay? And he divides truth wherever he goes. There is truth and there is untruth. Okay? There's truth and there's lies. Jesus is all truth. He is in everything he says and everything he does is, is God's word. And we'd have to believe it or not. There's no middle ground. Jesus is either a great, uh, he's either the great son of God, the great shepherd, God made human flesh, second person of the Holy Trinity, or he is a lunatic and a liar. There is no middle ground. There, there just simply cannot be. And that's what's so interesting. Most religions of the world all want to claim Jesus as this great teacher. Well, we want to respect Jesus because, I mean, you can't deny his life was amazing. And that always amazes me that they can look at such an amazing life, miraculous life, good life, holy life, true life, the truest one they ever lived, and not see that he's God, not see that it's all true. We're going to look a little bit more at that today, but I want to finish from last week's lesson with this closing thought because I don't think I had time to, to say it last week. I need to listen to the podcast but it, did, it is up. I put it up this morning. Jesus said in last week's verses, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. Jesus was making it very clear. Again, these are, these are his, his identification as God. They're not going to kill him against his will. He dies willingly for his sheep. And that's what we saw in the, the allegory of the shepherd. The shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And Jesus said, not only am I willing to lay down my life, but he also said in, in verse 17 that I may take it up again. And there's a, a, a prediction of his resurrection right there. Jesus is claiming he has the power to lay down his life and the power to take up his life. Granted, that probably went right over their head that day, but it's there for us to study and to learn from. So this morning, we're going to pick up with verse 22, which kind of looks like a new section. John is writing here, and he's telling us the time and the place of this, 
this little new conversation that's about to happen. And in verse 20, I'll begin in verse 22. And, and I think we'll read through verse 30 for the moment. It was the feast of the dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered round him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. But you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and know them, and they follow me. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's stop there. Powerful, powerful words. What is the setting of this place? John wants to carefully tell us that it's the time of the Feast of the Dedication, the Festival of the Dedication. And he wants us to tell us that it's winter. He wants us to mark a couple of things here. Do we know what the Festival of the Dedication is? I put this... Well, Y'all heard of this one, right? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Yeah. Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? It's the celebration of the purifying of the temple after the Maccabees mm-hmm. revolt. Right. The Ma- and if you do, if you have never read the book of the Maccabees, read it. Okay. It's in some Bibles. It's what our Protestant churches typically call the Apocrypha, but it it is considered canonical in the ancient churches and, and still by many today. And I highly esteem it and say it is very worthy of your reading. The book of 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees. So if it's not in your Bible, you can buy a lot of Protestant Bibles today that are printed with the, it'll say right on the spine, with the Apocrypha. In other words, that's those, those seven, uh, usually seven disputed books. When people look at a Catholic Bible versus a Protestant Bible and they say, how come theirs has seven more books in the Old Testament than ours does? Well, it's the official early ancient canon of Scripture. The first earliest canon of Scripture was known as the Septuagint. That was the Scriptures written in Greek 250 years before Christ. Okay, 250 B.C. And those Scriptures included those books. Okay, so it wasn't until really the 16th century in the Protestant Reformation that some Protestant reformers, Martin Luther being the leader probably, to said, I don't think we want to include all those books. Martin Luther had some issues with praying for the dead because of all the controversy over uh, purgatory in his era of time in the 16th century. And in the Maccabees, we do read about some praying for the dead, and so I think that was one of the things that caused Martin Luther to say, ah, let's pull that out. But on good authority, those books were always included in canonical scriptures for many, many years. Many centuries, let's put it that way. So, read them at your, at your pleasure. I, the Bible does refer to them in different places, and this is one. We wouldn't know what the festival of dedication is, or Hanukkah. We wouldn't know what it is if we hadn't read the book or studied the history. So, what is the Maccabean books? Um, Maccabees is, uh, I'll just write it here on the word, it's the book, the book, first there's actually four, first through four Maccabees, it's spelled M-A-C-C-A-B-A-E-U-S, I think, <laughs> it's kind of an unusual spelling, okay, that is, that is actually a Hebrew word that means the hammer, the nickname, Judas Maccabeus was the son of Matthias, Mattathias, and he had five sons. Mattathias, Maccabees had five sons. They were living in the 170s, 160s before Christ. Okay, So this is well into that era where we think of the Old Testament as ending around the book of Malachi and the voice of prophecy that closes after the Babylonian uh, captivity, the return from exile. We think all of that happens about 400 years before Christ. Well, this is halfway into that, about 160, 170 years before Christ. So if you just take your Old Testament and your New Testament, there's a gap of about 400 years between the history there. Okay, So some of those books, not all of them, but some of those 
apocryphal books, tell some of that history, especially the Maccabean books. And so if you read 1 Maccabees, the first five chapters are all about the revolt. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. Um, what were they revolting from? Well, if you remember, the, the Greeks ruled the world in the time of much of the Old Testament. The Greeks came and they took over the, you know, uh, the world. Uh, the great Greek empire was Alexander the Great. You've all heard of Alexander the Great, right? Mm-hmm. Alexander the Great, when he was dying, he decided before he died to split up his kingdom to four different of his generals, if you will. And one of those generals was a man named Antiochus. Okay, Antiochus. I'll write that up here for you. Antiochus. Antiochus IV. Antiochus Epiphanes, he's called. He began to take the section of the kingdom that was down around, he, partially out around Egypt and kind of that southern area. And he decided he wanted to rule over Israel, the area that was known as Israel as well. And Antiochus ruled, let me see if I have my years here in my notes. Uh, he, he actually ruled between the years 175 B.C. and 164 B.C. What do we know about Antiochus? He came into the land of Israel and he told the people that he was no longer going to allow them to celebrate their Jewish faith. He, would, he was going to uh, outlaw the Jewish religion. At first he promised them lots of things and tried to do it peacefully. And actually a lot of the people went along with it. Well, this is the empire, this is what's happening. And so there was consternation in the people, the Jewish people, that many of them were what we would use the word apostatizing, okay? They were going into apostasy. They were falling away from the true faith. They were going to follow these Greek gods and, and things like that. Well, eventually, not all the people would, would follow. And the, the Jewish people had this revolting attitude, if you will, that wanted to rebel a lot. And Antiochus decided he had to just go in and take charge. And so he went in with his army and totally decimated the city of Jerusalem. Burned it. Went into the temple. Took every holy thing out of the temple. Even, get this, even sacrificed swine Mm. on the great altar. Why swine? The Jews always did animal sacrifice. What was he saying to them when he sacrificed swine on their altar? They didn't believe that you could even eat pork. Right, that was the ultimate unclean animal. So he here he was he was he was desecrating the the temple. It was it was a horrible horrible desecration. Well, Judas Maccabees, his father and his brothers, his they led a revolt. They took a lot of people into the. They decided to go up into the mountains. Their family had grown up in an area called Modin, which is actually a city that's still in operation in Israel. If you've ever been there, Modin is a very modern city today, but its roots are very ancient. It's an Old Testament city. Not too far away from Jerusalem, up in the hill country. And in, in their time there, they began to plan rebellion. And they had gathered and amassed quite a, quite a few soldiers. Those first five chapters of Maccabees, it, it, is, it is a thrilling tale. We don't have time to go into it all. But you should read it. So if you don't have a Bible with those books in it, just Google it. You can find the book of Maccabees on the, on the computer. Read those first five, six, seven, eight chapters of the book of Maccabees. And learn about the story here. Because what they did was they basically took down Antiochus and his empire through their rebellion. They ended up, and it was tough, it was tough, nip, nip and tuck for a while, and they didn't always look like they were going to win, uh, but they did. And they came in and restored the temple. They restored, they built a brand new altar. They took away the stones that had been uh, desecrated, and they brought in new stones, and they, they re-basically refurnished, rededicated. And when it came time to dedicate the temple now anew, remember it was dedicated first by Solomon, when it was built, and then it was, we know that uh, it was torn down during the Babylonian uh, times, right? And so the, 
the second temple was rebuilt then, okay? So in this, in the Old Testament times, and in that time of rebuilding, uh, it was, you know, it needed in this time to be repurified. Okay, so we have a, a celebration, a festival, a dedication uh, of the new temple. And one of the most exciting things, so when you think of Hanukkah, what do you think of? Christmas. You think of Christmas because it happens parallel kind of in time to our Christmas. What else? Lights. lights. Yeah, it's also called lights, a yeah. festival of lights. One time I brought in my little Hanukkah lampstand, you remember, yeah, that, that. that had the eight candles. It had eight candles where the great menorah, one of the, one of the things in the, in the temple stood what was called a giant menorah, and it, had, it was a seven-branch candlestick. Okay? Is it celebrating the Messiah? It's not quite, but it looks forward to it in a way. Okay, now the great, the great candlestick, the great menorah, when it came time for them to relight it, they didn't have enough oil. They, 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 you can't, this is actually, this is legend, okay? We can't prove it, of course. But the legend tells us that when Judas and the people were trying to read it, the only thing they found was one cruise of oil that had not been desecrated. In other words, that had not been handled by the, the pagans. And because everything that had been handled by the pagans was taken out and thrown away. They had one cruise of oil, which was enough to light it for one day. But the celebration was called for eight days. Why? Isn't that fascinating? Eight days. Why do you think they wanted to celebrate for eight days? Well, we don't know their exact reason. You know, seven days was the creation of the world. The seventh day God rested, you know. And so we see of seven. Eight is the number of infinity. I find that fascinating. Eight is so like we have the eighth day bookstore over here on Douglas. You know, I love that bookstore. The eighth day is that day that the early church, when they began to celebrate the re, the day of the resurrection, the Lord's Day, Sunday, rather than celebrate on Sabbath, which was Friday night into Saturday, they saw that that new day, the Lord's Day, now not just as another beginning of another week, but it's entering into the eighth day, the day of okay. eternity, okay? And that's where they're kind of like those eight candles, it's kind of like a pointing towards Messiah and a pointing towards the eternity of, of life in Christ and life in God, even though they probably didn't know that when they chose eight days for the celebration. But that's why a Hanukkah, and so there are a couple of different traditions within the Jewish faith where the Hanukkah lampstand is sometimes... They light all of them and then extinguish one per day, or they light one per day until it gets to eight. There's a little bit of a difference depending on which uh, tradition in the Jewish uh, faith that they follow. I think more than not, do it where they light one per day. That's what I grew up learning. Not that I grew up Jewish, of course, (laughs) (laughs) but just with friends and people that I worked with that were Jewish and things like that. Uh, so, we have this happening. John wants us to know this is happening at the time of the festival of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And so, he makes the comment. Jesus, John doesn't put these little things in the gospel for no reason. There's meaning behind it. And as we find out that Jesus is walking along, it says he's walking in the portico of Solomon. Remember the temple courtyards, the very first courtyard you could go into was the, temp, the courtyard of the Gentiles. Anyone could go in there. That's where the marketplace was and everything. And there was these long two rows of colonnades along the sides. And one of them was dedicated to the memory of Solomon. It was called the Portico of Solomon. So anywhere, it was covered. You know, a portico is a covered walkway. And so he had cover from the sun. And that's where a lot of the rabbis gathered and taught and, and uh, just ministered. And so this is where Jesus is walking. And it says the Jews are gathered around him, which would have been tradition. You know, boy, that's, they always gather around their rabbis. Jesus is kind of seen as a rabbi because he's a great teacher. And this was a common place for him to go and teach. And so as he is there, this group that is always opposed to him, that John always calls the Jews, he means the leaders of the Jews, might say the shepherds of the Jews, so always contrasting this leadership, good shepherd, bad shepherd. Okay. We think of a shepherd today, a pastor as just an ordained minister like myself. But really in Old Testament times, the shepherds were the leaders. 
We see that even as far back as the ministry of Moses. God tells him, appoint 70 uh, people to help you minister to the people. That was give, uh, the word of the Lord given to Moses back in the desert days. So there's leaders, these Jews, come up to Jesus and they just say, they just confront him. And they say, would you just tell us plainly? <laughs> would you just tell us plainly who you are? And what's Jesus' response? He tells them they already had it. Yeah, I, I, I like to hear Jesus as if he was saying, I think John's being kind here. I, I think Jesus might have said something like, are you that dense? <laughs> yeah. How can you not know who I am? I have told you and told you and told you, yeah. So, you know, we, John gives it to us this way. He says, Jesus says, I told you. And I'm not going to tell you again. <laughs> and he says, you don't believe. So Jesus is calling them out for their unbelief. And then he says, here's how I've told you. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to me. Now, let's think about those works for a minute. What all have we seen Jesus do? Heal the sick. Heal the, the blind. A man born blind. Born blind. One guy that was blind because of affliction. One guy that was born blind. He's healed the sick. Crippled. He's healed the crippled and the lame. And also raised the dead. He's, he's, I don't know if that's happened yet. John hasn't showed it to us, but yes, it's happened. Because what we're reading about here is the very last year of Jesus' ministry. So, oh, that's right. Even though, we, we remember, we don't always read the book of John chronologically. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, even raised the dead. I mean, they're looking at him. How could they not believe? He actually told the woman at the well who he was. He even told the woman at the well who he was. And he's, remember, he has said several times to the people that have been questioning him, he has used that Greek phrase, ego ami, I am who I am. Mm -hmm. That was the holy name of God. They knew when they heard it in Greek, oh, he's claiming to be God, take up stones. So they really don't have an argument here. He's told them. And not only has he told them, <laughs> he showed them. Remember the prophet Isaiah said, when Messiah comes, he will raise he will raise the dead he will the lame will walk the blind will see these were prophecies that they were looking for in the messiah so they should have known better he's saying to you you know the works that i do you know the works that were prophesied for the messiah i do them but you don't believe why don't they believe we know by the division as we ended last week there were people that were starting to believe so not everyone was rejecting Jesus. We know there were some that were starting to believe in him and had been following him. And that even made him matter. But why did he, why did, why did, we've talked a little bit about this, but I want to circle back and remind you. Why did they not believe? They were looking for something different when they thought that they were going to have a king come that was majestic? Or... Yeah, you know, the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures speak about a king that rules. They speak about a Messiah healing the blind and the, everything. They speak about a king that ushers in a kingdom that will never end. Okay, they don't, they don't understand eternity the way they should. And maybe that's not even fair to them at that point, but it could be. They also uh, was expecting him to come in and overcome the, the government right. in place then and do away with them. And he didn't do that. Right, so they're expecting this kingdom and this kingly power that will literally deliver them to be the people they were always supposed to be, the people of God, the chosen people. And into that, Jesus comes meek and mild, preaching uh, love, preaching forgiveness, calling for repentance, healing the sick, associating with the Gentiles. You see, the Jewish mind never understood that Gentiles would someday be part of God's kingdom. They never understood that. Now, they could have, they should have, because even the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets Jeremiah and several of them prophesied that the Messiah will bring in the Gentiles. But it just they just lost that. They were so wrapped up that the only thing, they were the only people that they believed God ever had a purpose for in this world, and he was, his glory would be seen through them. And so when Jesus began ministering to the Gentiles and began, you know, bringing and preaching to the Gentiles, that was just almost too much for them. And they just said, no, this can't be the guy. 
And, and so into the, what we saw and what we've talked about before is the hardness of their hearts. We've talked just a little bit about this concept of predestination. And we're going to continue that discussion this morning. Because as you saw this, this, uh, this play out, let, let's just follow it on to what Jesus says here. Jesus says in verse 26 through verse 29 something very, very important. He brings back the allegory of the shepherd and the sheep. And he says, look at those verses with me again. But you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. Okay? You're not part of my sheep. You don't remember what we learned about sheep. Sheep know their master's voice. They know the shepherd's voice. The call that he makes. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and know them. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I want to talk about two things this morning. I'm going to write these words on the board. I want to talk about what it means to hear His voice, and I want to talk about uh, what it means to uh, be secure in Christ, which has a lot to do with this great theological word called predestination that we're all so nervous about when we, when we hear it. <laughs> because we don't understand. How can we be predestined to yet have free will? We've talked about it before, but it always bears worth talking about again. Because we need to keep that, this balance of God's sovereignty and our freedom in our hearts and minds. Now, what he says first is, my sheep hear my voice. Now, the Greek word, I want to teach you a Greek word this morning. Okay, it's a very important word. And the word is, if I can spell it here, akuo. 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 Okay? Akuo. If you were in a room and you talk about the sound in the room, what's a word that you use? Okay, what else? What was it again? Acoustic. Akuo. Hear, that? hear the word acoustic? Echo, you hear the sound of it? Okay? That's where we get that English word, acoustics, from this word. But here, if we, if we look into the Greek in this word, he, it, it doesn't just stop with hearing. The real meaning of this word, when you look it up and see how it's used, it means that you obey what you hear. My sheep hear my voice and know me because my sheep obey me. Jesus is linking obedience with hearing. Okay, you've heard the phrase that falls on deaf ears. You know, you've heard that phrase before. Oh, that just fell on deaf ears. Well, because they didn't get into their heart. They didn't obey. So they didn't really hear. If we really heard God's voice, if we really heard God speaking to us, if we really heard Jesus' plan for our lives, we'd obey, wouldn't we? See, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, uh, the, the tension that I want to bring to the conversation here. Hearing, really hearing, is obeying. Or you didn't really hear. Because Jesus is promising three things. And I'm going to write them on the board. They're right here in the scripture. Let's see if we can find them. Jesus is promising his sheep who will hear, really hear. He's promising them three things. What are they? That he knows them and they know me. In those verses that we just read. First one is verse 28. What's Jesus promise his sheep? Eternal life. Eternal life. Let's write it in here. He promises them eternal life. The second thing he promises them. That they can't be stolen from him. Uh, There's one in between there. That they will never perish. That's it. That's right. That they never perish. Okay. Well, that sounds to me... The same as eternal life. How is that different? Okay, let's talk about it. I, it, it it's, it's a little bit different, but not much. Okay. And the third one you said. What did you say, oh, Pat? And, and that was that uh, uh, they belong to him and, and he belongs. No one can steal them. No one yeah, can no steal them. No one can steal them. Yeah. So I'm going to use the word security. Okay. okay. Security. We talked, I told yeah. you I was going to talk about right. this concept of being secure. Eternal life. And never perishing. They really sound the same. They are the same. But when the people hear them in their hearts as, 
as new believers or non-believers, what they're hearing is, remember that death I know that's is an ultimate mystery. Yes. Even to the people of the Old Testament, death was an ultimate mystery. Nobody really understood then, and nobody really truly understands today, what happens when our loved ones die. Okay, well, we, can, we can accept on faith things that Scripture tells us, but there was this feeling that they've perished, that they have gone the way of the darkness. They've gone out of the world. We don't see them anymore. And what Jesus, I think, is trying to connect in their hearts is that the dead, he, he says this in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus' words in Revelation, they're in red if you look at it in that kind of scripture. He says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. For they shall rest from their labors, and their deeds will follow with them. There is this idea that not only do you have eternal life, but what is eternal life like? It is eternal rest. It is eternal peace. It is eternal joy. Eternal love. It is eternal love. It is eternal happiness. It is this idea of never perishing. Nothing's going to perish. Okay, Everything's going to be recreated. Jesus says at the end of the book of Revelation, Behold, I'm making all things new. I think also, too, when you dye your hair grows, your fingernail grows. And Isn't that fascinating? Something inside that coffin is preparing yourself for the new God. It's a pretty fascinating scientific fact that you said that fingernails and hair don't stop growing. I can't grow hair in certain places. <laughs> but what little I have. But, you know, it's just weird, isn't it? You know, why? And I've talked about this before because I, I think that God is showing us in little ways the holiness of the temple, the body. Okay, the temple of God. He says this is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Right. And it's made in His image and His likeness. So, there is this amazing... Uh, amazing promise to never perish. But let's talk about what it means to really be secure because that's, that evades us sometimes. Jesus uses this imagery that, that he says, no one, my sheep, I promise them eternal life, I promise them they'll never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand, he says. Okay? Now, if you've been around Christianity very long, you've known or maybe somebody in this room grew up with this doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of eternal security in your childhood or maybe your background or maybe you've just studied it or have friends that teach it. It is today usually taught under the banner of what's called Reformed Theology. Reformed Theology as coming from the Reformation, the Great Reformation. Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others, okay? John Calvin especially championed this idea of personal predestination that if we were truly saved, we could never really lose our salvation. And one of the scriptures that he used and that his followers used that taught after him was this thought right here. My sheep know my voice. They're in my hand and no one can snatch them out. Once you're in the Father's hand, no one can snatch them out. Would it also be like building the shield of armor? Could be, yeah. Once impenetrable thing. But, but follow me on this, with, if you will, on this idea of no one can snatch them out. First of all, Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't say it's just no one can snatch them out of my hand. He goes on to say that now we're both actually in the Father's hand, and the Father's hand's greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's what he says. See, so read it again with me. In verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, now my Father who has given them to me. Now, who's he talking to? These Jews, every time he says, my father, he's just, they are getting so mad at him. Because yeah. he, he's talking about God, and he's claiming to be God's son, and calling God his father. And, and he says, my father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So basically, he's saying, not only are the sheep in my hand that hear my voice and know me, we're all in the father's hand. And no one's taking them out of God's hands because you may think I'm not the greatest, but you know God's the greatest. No one's taking them out of God's hands. And then if that's not enough, what does he say? 
I and the Father are one. For I and the Father are one. Wow. I and the Father are one. Now, let's, let's, I know the Bible's not written in English, and originally this would have been Greek, this, this Gospel of John. But even when we translate the Greek and when we translate the, the ancient Bible commentators, I want to read you a couple here that are very important. One of the things I love to do in this Bible study is bring out some of the ancient Christian fathers whenever I can. Because... Both. The Old Testament was mostly Hebrew. The New Testament was all Greek. The Old Testament had a little bit of Greek and Aramaic in it towards the end of it. But most of the fragments and things we put together are the Hebrew and Greek, you could say. But the whole Bible was translated into Greek first. That was the Septuagint I talked about 250 years before Jesus. Now, here is a couple of early church fathers talking about this idea. Um, this is from Hippolytus or Hippolytus, however you want to say his name. He lived in the second, the 200s, okay? the second full century, it was called the third century, but in the 200s. He said this, and if, he, he's quoting about John. Now, if John were to say, Jesus himself said, I and the Father, he says, Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. Now, let, he's the person that he's, there's a guy named Noetus that he's arguing with, and he says, now let Noetus apply his mind to the matter and learn that Jesus did not say, I and the Father am one. Jesus did not say, I and the Father am one, but rather are one. Quote, we are is not said with reference to one, but with reference to two. Okay? He revealed two persons in a single power. Jesus by saying, I and the Father are one is revealing the Trinity to us. Okay. He's reading two but one. Yes. I have to I have to stop you. Jump in. If we who have been given the entire Bible, old and new parts, yeah. and then explain the Trinity today, don't get it. How could they have possibly expected those people who didn't have the Trinity knowledge to believe him? That's a great question. They okay. couldn't believe him. That's a, great, that's a great question. Let me follow up with you and then I'll come to you, Jackie. First of all, the first thing I would challenge is that I would turn it around. I would say they had a better chance of believing him than we do because mm -hmm. they knew the language he was speaking better than we've studied it. They knew the context and the culture he was speaking better than we've studied it. This is in at the time John is telling this. Jesus is saying it. No, but they did as soon as Jesus was risen from the dead, as soon as the Holy Spirit fell, and as soon as there was Pentecost and all of it. I mean, the church rapidly grew with the rest of the story. Okay, so no, in the in the crux of what they were doing there that day, they they didn't understand. Nobody understood he was talking about the Trinity. Right. Because the, the actual word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. Okay? It's not in there. But why is it so important to us? And I want to touch on that again. Because I believe it's filled all through the scriptures. It's the essence of who God is. And we see it here. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, somehow there's a mystery involved. Because there are also two. Okay? There's a Father and there's a Son. And there are also three because there's a the Holy Spirit. And what this guy, this writer, this ancient father is going on to say, he says, now, let me read another one to you. He says, Mark, he says, Mark that both of these words, one and are, you, in both of these words, you're delivered from the heresies of people like Arius and Sibelius. What was the heresy of Arius? Remember the heresy of Arius, the first great heresy that the church had to really combat in the, in the Nicene Council? That Jesus and God were totally separate and that Jesus was not God. He was God's created son. That was the heresy of Arius. Well, no, not the way Jesus even says it with his own words. I and the Father are one. So what was the heresy of Sibelius? That's another one we don't recognize offhand. Sibelius was a teacher, a pastor in the church, who said that, that God and Jesus were really just uh, forms of the same thing. 
They're really, they're really just one, but in different modes. It's, called, it's a heresy called modalism. Okay? That, that there's really just this one God, and it's really not three persons. He just manifests himself differently at different times. That's modalism. Sabellianism. That, that is what Jesus says, and that's not what God says either. Now, I believe you're right, but let me, let me come bring you back. I tell you, the greatest proof of the Trinity that you can wrap your mind around is this. I'm going to give it to you. I think I brought it out a few weeks ago, and I want to bring it out again. The greatest proof of the Trinity is because it's the only way God could truly be God and truly be the essence that he claims to be in Scripture. Tell me, you tell me, what, is the, what are the two words? What's the predominant? Let's just start with one. What is the one word that most describes who God is in his essence? Let's just list it. Let, let's, let's do a game here. Let's just try something. List all the words you can think of that describe God. I'm going to write them on the board. He is on, uh, omnipresent. List, okay, so... Present, all present. Mm-hmm. What else? Let's just make a big list. Love. Love. What else? Spirit. Spirit. Okay. What else? Power. Powerful. All powerful. Yep. What else? The word. Word. Okay. He is all word or all truth. I am. What else? Peace. Peace. Okay. There's some big ones you're not getting that I'm, I'm surprised you're not getting. Creator. Creator. Creator, okay. How about just? Mm-hmm. Just, is God just? Oh, that yes. comes kind of comes in with truth, he's just. Okay. Sovereign. Light is a big metaphor that John's oh, been yeah. teaching us about in the Bible, the festival of lights that Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Light, we need to put that in here. The only way. Okay, so out of these characteristics here, if you could pick one that you would say is most primary to show us who God is or as he reveals himself to be. Love. Which would it be? Love. That was a quick answer, okay. Does everybody agree with him? Shake it. Show hands. Who wants to vote for love? You're afraid because you're used to me tricking you, aren't you? (laughs) You're afraid to vote. You're absolutely right, Pat. It's love. God, for John, this very author that we're reading in his first epistle says, God is love. Right. And he also says, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at right. all. So nope. every other thing that we know about God, holy, all present, all powerful. You didn't make holy on the list. Wow. I guess <laughs> I missed that one. Just, you know, that's kind of like holy. But every one of them can be understood in the context of his love. Is God just? Yes. His justice is truly loving. Okay? Everything is about love. So the greatest scripture in all the world that everybody knows, and it's at every football game, is what? John 3.16. You know, there's a banner in the stadium at every football game in the world that says John 3.16. You've seen that, right? It's just a phenomenon that exists somewhere the camera pans the stadium and there's always a banner that says John 3.16. It's the most well-known scripture of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why does love prove the Trinity? I told you I was going to prove the Trinity as much as any human can because it truly is a mystery we can never comprehend. But why does love Prove the train. This is where the early church came. This is why the early church came down as Trinitarian, because it's the only thing that makes sense of the person and the essence of God. Why does love true? Because love cannot. Here's the answer. I'm just going to give you the answer. Love cannot exist in a vacuum alone. Right. Love cannot exist in a vacuum alone. Who did God before the world began? Before anything was ever created. Who did God love? Somebody would say the angels. Well, guess what? Before they were created. Who? You said it, Pat. The Son. The Holy Spirit. There has to be... A best understanding of the Trinity is an eternal exchange of love. 
And in his great love, he chose to share that eternal exchange with his creation, humanity. And so Adam and Eve were created in his image, in his love, to love. And he shared with them his creative power and humanity could procreate. And and there is this exchange of love. The nucleus of the human family, the father, the mother, the child, is a representation of the Holy Trinity. It is a triangle and a circle of love. You see, it's the greatest thing that our minds can comprehend. God is love. God is light. Now, if God is not Trinity, if the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, and that means Arius was right all that years ago, and all of Christianity is basically wrong, if that's the case, then Jesus could not stand here and say, I, the Father, are one. There's no way he could say that. We'd have to check him off as another lunatic and as a madman. That's just one of the many proofs that we're going to, we're, it's going to get deeper. When we get into chapter 13 and 14, Jesus is going to be claiming this again. He is going to keep claiming that he is God. He's going to keep claiming that, that, that he's love. And he's going to keep claiming that his sheep know his voice. Even though he's through with the allegory, he doesn't call them sheep. He said, those who, I think it's in John chapter 14, where he says, whoever hears my voice and obeys me, abides in me. Um, So we're going to get deeper into these metaphors, okay, as we go along. But for today, what we want to hear, what we really want to hear is that Jesus Christ promises those who follow him, those who hear and believe, those who hear and obey, that he's going to give them eternal life. They'll never perish. They'll be eternally secure. Do we believe in a doctrine of eternal security? Absolutely. But not the same eternal security that the Calvinist Christian brothers and sisters teach. Because their doctrine of eternal security is totally uh, unconditional. And they call it unconditional. Okay, Calvinistic theology says it's unconditional. There, there's nothing you can do about it. But I'll give you the... Do we have minutes? we got ten minutes. I'm going to give you a little quick lesson in Calvinism. Because it sets up the difference that's really, really important. I'm not saying anything against... Calvinist Christians that I love and am friends with, and I I just simply disagree with them. But I'm going to give you a quick lesson in it, okay? There is, within the teachings of John Calvin, he began to describe our relationship with God as a tulip, okay? T-U-L-I-P. And that is an acronym, or an acrostic, whatever that's called. And the T, he said, stood for the first thing we have to understand about man, he says, is that we are totally depraved. So much so that we cannot turn to God on our own. It would be impossible for us to do that. Um, and the you, he says, is unconditional election, is what that stands for. You know, we read in Scripture how we're the elect in Christ. In the book of Romans, he talks about the elect. Paul often talks about the elect. He says it's an unconditional election. He says that God before time and creation decided who would be saved and who would not. And he elected unconditionally some to be saved and some not. That's unconditional. You have nothing to say about it. You have nothing to do with it. It was God's decision from his mighty wisdom and sovereignty before the world began. The L is a limited atonement. Okay? They don't believe that Jesus died for everyone. Only the elect. The limited group. Okay? The I stands for irresistible grace. No, I'm not going to spell very well on the really quick writing here. Irresistible grace. That if you're elect, it's irresistible. You can't resist God's grace. He's going to save you one way or the other. You're going to get saved. He's going to drag you into the kingdom because you're part of the elect. The P stands for perseverance of 
the saints. In other words, the, the elect, the holy ones. Now, every one of these two, you cannot pick and choose which one of these you want to believe. They all fall in line. Okay? His view of total depravity meant that, that man is so depraved, so far gone, there is no hope for any man. And that in God's wisdom, he knew who should be saved and who shouldn't. So he uh, unconditionally elected people. And the reason it's unconditional is no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. It's unconditional. If you're in the hand, you're in forever. Okay? The limited atonement just makes sense that Jesus is not going to die for people that are never going to receive it. From his way of thinking, not from my way of thinking. Okay? I, it's, the grace is irresistible. Only you're saved by grace, so therefore you can't do anything about it. If you're part of the elect, it's irresistible. You can't, you can't do anything about it. And then the P, you're going to persevere. You're never going to fall away because you've been elect. So none of these things are necessarily, it's the conclusions he came to that are wrong. The, this, the premise is correct. There is an elect. There is a perseverance of the saints. There is, a, 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 in a sense, a limited atonement. But it's only limited by our choice, whether we want to receive him or not. There, there is an election, but it's conditional, not unconditional. What's it conditioned upon? Conditioned upon our free will. It's a condition on our free will to choose Christ. He's not going to force himself upon us. And so this is a, this is a neat little, very neat package, and it's a deep theology. And John Calvin was a very holy man, and he lived above his theology, I believe. But he was trying to remember what he was trying to do in the 16th century. Him and Martin Luther and others were trying to reform a church that had gotten so corrupt. That was so, and, and it was teaching, you know, basically he felt like they were teaching that you could save yourself by your good works. And to him that was so foreign and well it should be because we can't save ourselves by our good works. We, we do good works because God's prepared them for us. But we do them in his power and not for our salvation. We do them because we're cooperating with his spirit. Okay? Now, that's just a quick little primer on, on Calvinism. I know we don't have time to go into it real deep, but the reason I wanted you to hear it is because that doctrine of eternal security swept the world. It swept the Protestant Reformation. Many, 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 if you line all the Protestants up in two columns, those that believe in a more reformed view and those that, and those that don't, the, the, those that don't, it's a pretty short list. And the Church of the Nazarene's on that short list. Okay? The Wesleyan holiness movement would be on that short list. The Church of England, of which we flow, the Methodist Church, and before it, the Church of England would be on that short list. But basically, everybody else, from Lutherans to Calvinists to Presbyterians to Reformed Dutch, and you can go on down this Mennonites, Baptists, all of those tend to flow from that more. Calvinistic approach to things. Now, after a few hundred years, really by the modern era, here's how powerful I think the, the, uh, the holiness message of free will is. Okay? Is that even the great crusader Billy Graham, <laughs> a Baptist, Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist theology has basically been morphed with a little Wesleyanism. Because even Billy Graham said, well, you've got free will. You need to choose. Of course, he did believe once you chose, no going back. Okay, But you see how that Wesleyan view of free will just kind of even morphed into some of the... So today, there are many, quote, Reformed theology churches that are not... They don't want to buy all of this. They're trying to just buy part of it. And the ones that really buy all of this are getting fewer and fewer. Um, because it, it ultimately doesn't make sense out of God's love. Why would a God of love let you be born into a world where you have no opportunity to hear the message of salvation? That's not love. That's cruel. And there's no way we can make God out to do that. The only thing that makes sense is that you and I have the freedom to love. We have the freedom to choose God. We have the freedom to reject God. So what is Jesus saying when he's saying no one can snatch them out of my hand or the Father's hand? He's not saying 
I'm not going to keep you here against your will. See, he doesn't say, and you can't even jump out. Okay? Uh, that, that, that sounds a little funny because I kind of meant it to be a little funny, but you can't jump out of God's hand. Okay? He's saying, he's not saying that. He's, saying, he's not saying you can't jump. If you want to leave, leave. But he's going to love us so strong and so hard and his love, while it's not irresistible, it is amazing. I think this hymn writer called it amazing love. John Wesley or Charles, whichever one wrote that hymn. Amazing love, how can it be? Yes? And I'm so thankful he loves us unconditionally. Oh, yeah. There's where the unconditional comes in. It's his love that's unconditional. I mean, I... That's right. His love just, is totally just unconditional. Quickly, I, and some of you have heard it, but I... Sadly, my dad didn't love me unconditionally. Right. He always put conditions on it. And... But... Know, but, but un- God God's love. God is the ultimate father. God is the ultimate parent. God is the ultimate resource of life. God is love. And his love is totally unconditional because anything less than that isn't real love. And that's why you and I are called to have unconditional love. As we go through the scriptures, and we've done this in some of our other studies when we were studying the, uh, the, some of John's letters but we'll, we'll see it at the end of this book when John, in the last chapter of this book, which is going to be a while before we get there because we're just in chapter 10. But when we get there, we're going to see Jesus talking to Peter about this unconditional love and about the different kinds of love. Because you know, there are different Greek words for love. There's different kinds of love. We can have a brotherly love. And that's not always unconditional. Okay? We can have a... Uh, a physical love. You know, that's a, that's a real love. Eros is the Greek word, okay? And it's a physical love. Uh, but then there's also agape. Agapeo is the Greek word for unconditional love. So we have to pay very close attention when we read the word love in the Bible. Which word is it using in the Greek? And it uses all three at different times. So it's very important for us to have our little Greek lexicon and say, oh, let's look that up. So every time you have, you, every time you see the word love in the Bible, look it up in your little Greek lexicon. You, know you don't have a Greek lexicon, I know. But you do if you go to BibleHub.com. They don't have a Christian store in Wichita anymore, do they? No. Well, just the Eighth Day, the eighth day Bookstore is a Christian bookstore. Mardell's. Mardell's, the new superstore out way, way out east, is a, is a Christian. M-A-R-D-E-L, Mardell. Yeah. That's way out east off of Highway 96. That's a Christian store. But here's what I want you to hear. Jackie, you had your hand up earlier, and I'm not sure I came back to you. D-E-L, yeah. Jackie, did I answer your question? You had your hand up earlier, and I... I did I come back to you? I didn't want to skip you. Must have. Okay. <laughs> no, it was more like a statement to a question that she had okay. asked. Um, yeah, I, I said I'll take hers, and then I wanted to come back to you, but I can't remember if oh, I did. it was kind of like the Greeks and the Jews and everything. They built pyramids. They had dimensions and measurements mm-hmm. and all that stuff better than we do. I mean, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. As to how we can understand. It's like the Trinity to me, it's like you say me, myself, and I. Me would be God. Myself is this Holy Spirit and I is Jesus. And it's like a triangle. It's like all in one. Yeah, there's so many. There, there's a lot of metaphors like that. that we, As long as we understand no metaphor can completely capture God because he's uncapturable. Sure. He's unfathomable. Because life is three dimensions in it, everything. It, I, would, I would even go to say it's four dimensions. And you know what the fourth dimension is? Eternity, the very life of God. So, so here's, we didn't have time. We're out of time. It's 12.01. But what I didn't get time to do and what I'm going to do next week is I want to talk about what is eternal life? How do we enter? How do we enter into the very life of God? The very life of Christ. And that transcends this human world. That's one of the promises of God, but we'll have to save that for another time when we have more time. Well, thank you for your time this morning. Um, thank you. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we have opened our hearts and minds today to the beauty of your precious word. 
And we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Guard over and watch over and, and just cover over anything that I've taught that's wrong. I don't ever want to mislead somebody. But Lord, would you in the Spirit, uh, in your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts about what we're learning. And continue to lead us and guide us until we meet again. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.